Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the disparities the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light within the Native American population. To examine this are IDSA member Dr. Jonathan Iralu with the Indian Health Service and Dr. Donald Warren, the Director of Indians into Medicine with the University of North Dakota. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Dr. Warren, I'd like to start with you. Can you please explain how the COVID-19 pandemic has taken a toll on the Native American population? Sure, and I think it's important to also acknowledge that there's a lot of diversity within American Indian populations. So some populations have been more adversely affected than others. But generally speaking, what we see is that populations that are impoverished and have substandard uh, healthcare systems or less access to services we see worse outcomes from uh, all kinds of health threats, including a pandemic. So what we've seen in some areas of the Indian Health Service and within some tribes specifically, based on lack of adequate public health infrastructure, combined with poverty and overcrowded housing, uh, unfortunately, COVID-19 has just taken off like wildfire in some places. So if we look at the Navajo Nation, for example, as I understand the history of it, there was a Uh, an event or a gathering of several people in which uh, it was spread uh, at that gathering of a a number of people that then went back to their homes and to their communities and spread it from there. So it's something that's obviously very contagious, but when you have uh, challenges related to overcrowded housing and inadequate public health infrastructure, we can see very bad outcomes. So that's just one example. And unfortunately up here in the Dakotas, we're also seeing many of the tribes have Uh, skyrocketing rates of COVID-19. And the other big challenge we face is up here, we have higher rates of cigarette smoking, also very high rates of diabetes, heart disease, and lung disease. So our population is at great risk for contracting COVID-19 infection, but because of the comorbidities like diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, our people are at much higher risk for hospitalization and death. So it's kind of a confluence of multiple factors that create worse outcomes for many Native populations. And we're going to discuss those comorbidities you just mentioned, Dr. Warren, a little later in the podcast. But right now, do you have recent statistics that demonstrate the disparities being felt within this group? Yeah, if we look, uh, for example, where I'm from in the Dakotas, uh, in Rapid City, for example, South Dakota, as of a couple weeks ago, even though the population of American Indians is less than 15% of the city, they accounted for over 50% of COVID cases. Now that's come down a little bit as a percentage. Um, Some of that due to less spread among American Indians, but quite honestly, it's also because of greater spread among the non-American Indian population. But we're still seeing uh, disparities uh, in terms of American Indians being overrepresented in the COVID positive population. Thank you for that information, Dr. Warren. Dr. Irulu, Can you discuss in generalities the state of emergency funding for COVID-19 resources for underserved populations, particularly Native Americans, and what is being done locally and nationally to prepare facilities and staff to surmount pre-existing disparities? So I'm not on the Indian Health Service uh, senior leadership, and I can't really give you specifics about the exact dollar amounts, but I can tell you that in general, there have been plenty of funds given directly to tribes 
and also to us in the Indian Health Service. So in, in terms of the care that we're providing for COVID-19 here, we have not seen a big shortfall or problems um, due to funding. When we've been unable to purchase things like personal protective equipment and uh, other de devices like ventilators, that has been because there are, there are national sh and international shortages of those items. But I have to say that COVID has truly revealed some of the disparities that we see in Indian country. So speaking locally here on Navajo, we have for a long time had trouble with reaching our patients by telephone because there is, there is inadequate um, cell phone tower coverage on this Indian nation. And so the, you, if you're trying to do a contact investigation, it's really hard to do that if you can't reach them by phone. This, secondly, we're asking patients to wash their hands constantly to um, avoid trouble with contact with COVID and transmission through contact. And water has always been a, a, an issue here in the Southwest. There are no pipelines. Many people have to, to haul water and COVID has made that more acute. People have trouble to get to the hospitals because there are inadequate roads in many cases. And as Dr. Warren was mentioning, there's, there is inadequate housing. Sometimes we have uh, large families with multiple generations living in a small home. So we, we, we think that COVID has, has exposed some of these chronic problems that we've seen as, as being true disparities. We have been able to do things to address this. And I can talk both on a, on a local and a national level. So in the Indian Health Service, we have large hospitals and medium-sized hospitals and clinics, both in urban and in very rural areas. And some of our buildings are older, and we've had to do a lot of work to upgrade and renovate. So for instance, in the hospital where I work, our engineer and facilities team is working hard to get negative airflow HEPA filters installed in most of the inpatient rooms to make this a safer environment. So basically an upgrade. We had to put tents up in our um, emergency department area so that we can do intubations for patients sick with COVID-19 illness and fly them out safely without exposing uh, lots of other patients and staff to the virus. We've been fortunate because of um, disbursements of medication through the Department of Health and Services to be able to offer state-of-the-art therapy to our patients. We have um, the drug remdesivir, we're using lots of dexamethasone, so we're able to give the latest and, and greatest that are available to our patients. Um, we were able to uh, create an alternate care facility at uh, two or three sites um, here in the southwest, including my town of Gallup, New Mexico, and these were used for a while during the peak of COVID incidents back in April and May. And then a, a really innovative thing that was done was to create a hotel and motel um, placement for persons who were exposed to COVID and were not yet sick, persons who had COVID and had no place to stay because they were experiencing homelessness, or people who were at risk for COVID because there was, say, for instance, COVID in a younger family member in a multi-generational home, we were able to place those persons in a motel. We've done all kinds of beautiful collaboration with the Navajo Nation here, and this sort of collaboration is happening across Indian country. And we've also been able locally to do um, lots of collaboration with groups like Partners in Health, 
Doctors Without Borders, University of California, San Francisco, and then the COVID Care Force. So we, when the word got out in the national press that there were troubles, we were able to get these teams in. They really wanted to help address these disparities. On a national level, we've been able to prepare by teaching clinicians, nurses, pharmacists, social workers, and and um, home health workers about how to take care of COVID through the Project ECHO platform. So this is basically a Zoom-based teaching platform where we give weekly um, talks on hot topics. For instance, today we talked about the effect of um, COVID-19 on the mental health of communities in Indian country. And we previously talked about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in in, uh, children and um, we're able to kind of uh, walk clinicians and other nurses, pharmacists, and other providers um, through a response to the COVID epidemic. So that's how we have, in, in some way, how we've used the, the, the funding that we have to address some of the disparities that COVID has revealed. Thank you, Dr. Eralu, for that extensive answer. Dr. Warren, turning back to you, members of the Native American community are, in many cases, isolated from advanced medical care. Is telemedicine the answer here? Many of our reservations are quite rural and frontier types of environments with uh, not large population bases or medical centers close by. So telemedicine is a key component of addressing uh, all of our health concerns, to be quite frank, but uh, particularly for treatment with COVID cases. The, The challenge, though, is even if you have telemedicine, you don't necessarily have ventilators. You don't necessarily have intensivists or intensive care units. So quite frequently, the patients would have to be transported to a larger population center with higher levels of care. So just for your listeners, maybe to to get a little bit of uh, background that's prevalent here, um, nationally, uh, depending on the data sets that you look at, the majority of American Indians actually live in cities, but here in the, the Northern Plains, the majority of our population lives on reservations, which, which tend to be very rural. And most of the reservations do not have a local hospital. They have clinics, but not a hospital. So we have to engage the private sector. When we think about an appropriate response to something like a pandemic, we describe the three T's, right? That's testing, contact tracing, and treatment. And Uh, Even a bigger issue than access to telemedicine or access to intensive care really is the public health infrastructure challenges because this is something that is preventable. Uh, We do need to have treatment, obviously, but I I wish we're uh, doing a better job and more more access to frequent and accurate testing. And then for those who are positive, doing contact tracing. And when you have overcrowded housing and uh, homelessness or uh, people who are in and out of homelessness, it's very difficult to do contact tracing in those settings. And I'd also say within a, many of our tribal communities and other underserved uh, populations, the other T would be trust. And quite often our community members don't necessarily have a great deal of trust for government government programs and understandably so uh, because of the long history of things like treaty violations and, and inadequate investment and in promised healthcare services. So we have huge challenges in front of us. And I think telemedicine would be of great value for a number of health conditions and even potentially outpatient treatment for something like COVID-19. But when you need intensive care, you need to have those services local and we just don't have them in most of our IHS and tribal facilities. Telemedicine is wonderful for doing um, contact investigation 
but a person has to have a telephone or it needs to have a cell phone tower near their home in order to do that contact tracing. And then telemedicine does not help you in the in intensive care, uh, critical care kind of scenario that COVID brings. So I, I, I think it's part of the answer, but it's not really the be all and end all. Thank you both for your answers. I'd actually like to direct the next question to both of you, starting with Dr. Erlu, what can be done to reverse the skyrocketing number of Native Americans that are dealing with the crippling impacts of the comorbidities Dr. Warren mentioned earlier, which continue to lead to COVID-19 related deaths? In addition to COVID revealing some of the healthcare disparities, it's a good reminder to us that um, pre prevention, working on um, reducing comorbidities, um, by lifestyle changes, diet, exercise, et cetera, is something that we really should focus on. We have these nice um, programs in place um, involving uh, tribal healthcare workers who go into homes to, to encourage people to um, take care of their chronic diseases. If, I think if we would um, invest a lot of time and effort in expanding those programs to get diabetes under control, help people get into a healthy lifestyle, this, this could be beneficial and maybe won't help right now for what's happening with COVID, but it could help help prevent long-term healthcare problems in this population we serve. I agree that we should have more focus on prevention. An important starting point for understanding how we could be and should be addressing this issue is to recognize that the disparities have been ongoing long before there was a COVID pandemic. So, a little known fact is that American Indians are the only population in the U.S. that has, is actually born with a legal right to health services. And that's based in the many hundreds of treaties that were signed between the tribal nations and the federal government. The treaties are basically contracts and the, much of the common language in many of the treaties included that in exchange for land and natural resources, the federal government would provide promise of all proper care and protection. So there's a promise of all proper care and protection, but I would put forth that the federal government has been in breach of that contract for decades. They've underfunded the Indian Health Service tremendously. If you look at various federally funded health systems, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Administration, even the, the Bureau of Prisons, there's actually more money spent per year per person in federal prison for healthcare than there is for Indian Health Service. And that's just a national travesty. So we need non-Indian advocates to recognize that there's a crisis of indigenous health in the United States. And much of that, quite frankly, is the fault of Congress. Congress is responsible for funding Indian Health Service and they've never adequately funded IHS. So IHS, ironically, is within the US Public Health Service, but the IHS does relatively little public health because all of the resources are absorbed into medical care. So if we were to be honest about this, and if we were able to actually make meaningful interventions, first of all, we need to adequately fund the Indian health system, and that includes investments in public health. And I agree, we, we do need to have uh, improvements in uh, lifestyle and, and those types of things that can improve health and prevent disease like diet and physical activity, but in truth, Many of our communities are food deserts. We don't have local access to a supermarket. My hometown in Kyle, South Dakota is 90 miles away from the nearest supermarket. So I think about my relatives who have poverty, limited transportation and bad weather. Uh, they're not going to have 
local access to healthy choices. So it's more than personal responsibility. There's also a responsibility on behalf of the federal government because they were able to acquire uh, indigenous land and natural resources that have made this country very wealthy. But those are basically indigenous resources. And I look at Indian Health Service as the largest prepaid health plan in history. But the federal government through the Congress has just never adequately invested in the Indian Health Service to ensure that we have the public health infrastructure needed to prevent chronic disease, but also to manage a pandemic. Thank you both for raising those important points. The last question I'd like to also direct to both of you. Can you offer recommendations to support the Native American population as it deals with COVID-19 and more importantly, beyond this pandemic, Dr. Irulu? It's It's been very inspiring to me to see the Navajo Nation um, step up and, and work really hard to, to eliminate COVID transmission here in the Southwest. The leadership created a, a really strong message to the community. They had to do some lockdowns, to on, especially on the weekends, to um, limit travel so that people would not be exposed to the disease. I, I found it really, what they've done, really inspiring. I'd like to encourage other folks in the country to, to, to follow their example. In terms of the, uh, the population that I serve, I, I don't have any uh, other specific recommendations. The one uh, potential silver lining of the pandemic is that it is shining a bright light on disparities that we didn't uh, see as clearly before nationally. So I'm hoping that as we expose the disparities that we're facing with underserved populations, that perhaps we can do something about it. And when we think about what's happening right now in terms of the summer of 2020, we're seeing all kinds of movements, you know, with the Black Lives Movement and other social justice causes on top of trying to deal with a pandemic and all the political considerations. What I'm hoping is that as we move forward, that we will, we will use this crisis and understand that we have terrible inequities in this country and that when we have inequities to this degree, it has an impact on everybody. You know, costs go up for everyone when we have uh, high rates of chronic disease and high rates of infectious disease and uh, need for uh, intensive care and uh, less local access to preventive services. So what I'm hoping is that uh, the, the health crisis combined with the political movements and the social justice movements is perhaps once we get through the pandemic, we will seize the opportunity to improve our systems and make them more equitable. That's what I'm hoping for. Um, if, we, if we don't, we've really wasted an opportunity because uh, we would be at risk for bad outcomes if another pandemic should occur. There's a possibility that we could have bad influenza on top of, of COVID this fall. And I think that we need to, as a society, look at our priorities, where we are placing our resources, and recognize that when we invest in things like public health, we're actually saving money and we're saving lives in the long run. And as a society, that should be a priority for all of us. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any final thoughts. Uh, you know, one of the, the things that I'm observing and one of the things that I hope we can overcome is kind of the pushback against scientific evidence that we're seeing and even the lack of wearing a mask and these types of considerations. And um, 
just for the audience in general and certainly for uh, underserved populations and American Indian populations, just wearing a mask can do so much to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And we, I think of it much in the same way as we have policies and regulations around secondhand smoke. When we say do not smoke in public, it's not necessarily to protect the smoker, but to protect the people around the smoker. And that's really what mask uh, regulations and mask requirements should be seen as, is, is not just protecting that individual, it's protecting everyone around them. So when people say I have the right to not wear a mask and get sick if I choose to, well, that, that may be true, but you don't have the right to get me sick. You don't have the right to get my family sick. So I, I also wish that we would use this opportunity to recognize that we have an impact on each other and we have a responsibility to each other. And that includes indigenous populations, but that really is across the board. I, I wish we would recognize the opportunity to have uh, responsible behaviors and improve outcomes for everyone and looking at our society as, as one people. I would like to close by recommending that members of the ID Society of America keep their eyes open and make themselves more aware of some of the disparities that we've talked about today in Indian country and other underserved populations and to try to come up with creative ways to offer care to American Indian people that might end up in their practice. I'd like to thank Drs. Iralu and Warren for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.